Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. Is life so dear? Are peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? Forbid it, Almighty God. I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. Those are the words of Patrick Henry speaking before the Virginia House of Burgesses. And it sounds pretty defiant, the way you might sound if you were talking in front of a parliamentary body as opposed to talking in front of an army of Egyptians, for example. This sentiment, give me liberty or give me death, is a common one in the United States. Uh, There's actually a state in the Union that has as their state motto, live free or die, and it isn't Texas. It's New Hampshire. I was in New Hampshire last summer, and it's funny to drive around in the Northeast and see all of these, these license plates that say live free or die, and then you look up and you see like the speed limits posted and, and all of the rules of the road and that sort of thing. And I look around, and I see a lot of what I would consider non-freedom going on, and yet people aren't dying for it. They're not dying for it. They, they've, let's say, defined freedom down so that they don't have to die for it, which is what we tend to do. Live free or die, but, you know, if you want most of my freedom, fine, just don't kill me for it. But the Israelites are faced with a similar kind of situation in the text that we've just read. We're told that they're going out defiantly. They're leaving Egypt defiantly. Pharaoh has been crushed. He's been humbled. The people of Israel, before they leave, they basically loot the treasures of Egypt. And then they march on their merry way, delivered, free, defiant. They they go out with some attitude. That changes, though really fast, once they see the Egyptian army upon them. And in that moment, they do the thing that that we so often do. All of that uh, defiance melts away, or at least it, it shifts directions a little bit. Where the defiance had been aimed at Pharaoh and the Egyptian host, now it's aimed at Moses. And the people start getting sarcastic. They get lippy with Moses. Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? It's kind of funny when you think about it. It's a good question. I I like that they're uh, uh, trying to to goad him in that way. Probably not the right way to react under those circumstances. And yet, understandable. But think about it. These people had witnessed the plagues that had humbled Egypt. They had witnessed the signs that had brought Pharaoh to his knees. They had seen those things with their eyes. When they left, they didn't need GPS to guide them. They had God to guide them in the form of a pillar of clouds by day, and at night, fire. They were seeing things the likes of which we've never seen. The kind of things that you tell yourself, if I saw that, I wouldn't have any doubt. I mean, sure, I struggle. Sure, I'm not always certain about what God has said, but I've never seen miracles. I've never seen it with my eyes. If I'd seen it with my eyes, that would be different. They saw it with their eyes. They saw what God could do, and it made no difference to them when they saw the size of the Egyptian army bearing down on them. They found themselves trapped. 
between literally the devil and the deep blue sea, between Pharaoh and, and the deep red sea, with no options, with no way out. We may be tempted to judge them harshly, but we should be patient because we're just like them. Because we, too, speak defiantly when it's safe to do so. When we're surrounded by our fellow Christians, live free or die. I'd rather die for Jesus than compromise, that sort of thing. But then you find yourself actually tested. And that defiance gets redirected to God. Why did you do this to me? This is exactly what I was afraid was going to happen. I I, I thought things would go badly if I trusted you, if I followed you. And now, look, they are. Like, what is going on? We do exactly what they did. It's one of the reasons for our waiting. One of the reasons why God in his wisdom has us waiting patiently for Christ to come again is that we need that wait in order to grow, in order to mature. We need time in the wilderness, so to speak, in order to reflect, time to be taught and to learn. Waiting, waiting reveals your true situation, shows you where you're really at, and it forces you to give up on false promises of deliverance. It's waiting that shows you your true situation and forces you to give up on false promises of deliverance. Waiting teaches you to go forward in faith and let God fight for you. Waiting gives you time to look beyond yourself and focus on the glory of God. Part of the reason for our waiting is that we need that wait. We need it. It has something to teach us. Waiting reveals your true situation. It forces you to give up on false promises of deliverance. The Egyptian captivity of Israel is one of those historical events that throughout Scripture, forever after in Scripture, it has sign value. The Exodus is the thing that they point to later in Scripture as a kind of ideal picture of God's plan of salvation. It's one of those things that once you've gone further through Scripture and you've seen the way the Bible talks about this, it's kind of hard to come back to Exodus 14 and read it as just a straight historical narrative without thinking about the symbolism, without thinking about what it signifies. Egyptian captivity is a picture of human bondage to sin, our captivity to sin. Just as Israel waited a long time to be delivered from that captivity, we wait, we endure a long time to see our salvation come to fruition. What salvation does is deliver us, as it were, from one camp to another, from one territory to another, from a realm of bondage into a place of promise. It takes us where it finds us in captivity, and it sets us free, just as Moses led the people out of Egypt and into Canaan. Something like that is happening in your life in Christ, something pictured in these events. To turn our backs on this salvation, New Testament authors will say, is like returning to captivity, returning to bondage. It would be like going back to Egypt, which seems inconceivable, except that's exactly what they contemplate here. When they find themselves free and tested, 
Immediately they think it would have been better for us to be slaves in Egypt than to die here in the wilderness. They were tempted to go back. They were tempted to abandon the freedom that they had and return into bondage, and we are similarly tempted. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says that we should look at these events and see them as examples. But this is what he writes in 1 Corinthians 10, starting in verse 1. He says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. So in a few verses, Paul gives what you might think of as like a sacramental summary of the exodus and the time wandering in the wilderness, saying the people of Israel went through what you're going through. And in that wilderness, they were tempted and they succumbed and they died. They did not please God. And these things happened as an example to you so that you won't make the same mistakes that they did. You're meant to learn from what happened then. One of the things you learn in Exodus 14 has to do with your true situation, the situation we find ourselves in. The people of Israel had to find themselves trapped between the sea and Pharaoh in order to understand their true condition, to to see the nature of the predicament that they were in. They were trapped. They were trapped, and they had no way out. They could turn around and face the army of Egypt. That meant death. They could turn to the sea and start swimming. That meant death. There wasn't a third option. They found themselves trapped. They couldn't go back. They couldn't go forward. There was literally nothing they could do. And they realized that inability, and it drove them to the despair that we see in their words. But that despair does reflect at least this, an honesty, an honesty about their hopelessness. They weren't so deceived as to think that they might wheel around and overcome the Egyptians on their own. They didn't think it might be possible to knock together some rafts and just go across the river They had not even entertained silly possibilities like that. They had not put hope in in absurd plans for deliverance that couldn't possibly work. They saw clearly that none of those things would be an option. That clear-sightedness is important. There was nothing that they could do. If you picture them at that moment, with the armies of Egypt bearing down and nothing but the sea before them. You have a really good picture of the human predicament apart from Christ, where we find ourselves apart from Christ. The effects of sin are not such that we've been sickened by it. It's not such that we've been somewhat impaired by it. And that if we try harder or come up with a clever plan, we might deliver ourselves from those effects. It's much worse than that we find ourselves trapped, trapped between Pharaoh and the sea, as it were, 
between death and destruction, between bondage and obliteration. And there is nothing we can do. There is nothing we can do about it. We are helpless in that predicament. God, throughout Scripture, is progressively revealing the plan of salvation. We've seen already, by touching on Genesis 3, and then last time in Genesis 22, the way that salvation comes into focus more and more over time. There are things we know, having access to the end of the story, that they didn't know back then, but they were being given pieces of the puzzle. And sometimes it's helpful for us, who've got all the pieces already fitted together, to see how they were originally put together, to see how they originally came into place. And God, in this moment, is teaching something new about salvation. He's showing another layer about what he's doing in the plan of salvation. In fact, he's showing several. He's revealing that there is nothing you can do, the inability, the helplessness that we find ourselves in. But also implied in that, obviously, is that we need a way out. It can't be one of our own devising, but we do need a way out. We do need some way of deliverance, but it's a deliverance that can only come from God. Those people, trapped as they were, found themselves in a situation where there was only one solution. It was to look to God. And they did cry out to him in the wrong words, with the wrong attitude, asking the wrong questions, but they did know the direction that they needed to plead. That much the situation clarified. They saw their hopelessness. They turned to the only source of hope, which was the Lord. The beauty of their situation is that it revealed their condition immediately. If you were standing there with them, you would have seen it. You wouldn't need it explained to you. The problem is we're not standing there. At least we don't see that that's our predicament. And as a result of that, we're always trying to find another way out. We're always telling ourselves there's another solution. It doesn't have to be just Jesus. It could be something else. We convince ourselves the problem is smaller than it is so that the solution can be more modest. It doesn't have to be so extreme. I don't need the death of the Son of God to save me. What I need is is to start being good. If I just change my ways, if I make up for the, the, the really bad stuff I've done, it'll be fine. We tell ourselves these are possibilities. These are solutions. But Pharaoh is coming, and he doesn't care if you're a good person. Pharaoh was bearing down on the people. He wasn't saying, no, no, don't harm the ones who are trying to behave themselves. This is a kill them all situation. There's no hope. There is no hope for the people in just changing their ways. They have to look to God. Waiting forces us to give up on promises, false promises of deliverance, the same way that their situation immediately forced them to see that they had no other hope For us, the fact that we wait, the fact that we have a season of longing, a lifetime in the wilderness longing for him to come, gives us time to realize that there is no other way. There is no other alternative. Waiting teaches you not only what your true condition is, but waiting teaches you to go forward in faith regardless and trust God to fight for you. I love the way Moses speaks to the people because he has a confidence that they don't feel. And that's not always true for leaders. 
Oftentimes, you feel the same fears as the people that you lead, and it's difficult to say the right things because what they're saying is what you're thinking too. But Moses has confidence because God has shown him that that I'm the one doing this, that I'm the one bringing this about. Remember, none of this had to happen. It wasn't necessary for Israel to take this path. It wasn't necessary in order to get to the promised land that they march out to the wilderness and camp against the sea where there was no avenue of retreat. God made them do this. He told them, he directed them to do this for a purpose. There was a reason. He wanted this to happen. That's what was going on. And what Moses understands is we've got to trust in it. God doesn't reveal the reason. He doesn't tell Moses what's going to happen. We'll talk about this in a moment. He speaks almost cryptically. I'm going to have glory over Pharaoh. I'm going to have glory over Pharaoh. Well, what does that mean? We're going to see it means destruction. But Moses doesn't necessarily know that, understand that. All he knows is he's got to follow. He's got to do what God is telling him to do. And that's what he tells the people. Fear not, he says. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. And you have only to be silent. There is nothing you can do. But the good news is there is nothing you need to do because the battle is not yours. The battle belongs to the Lord. Salvation, Psalm 3 says, belongs to the Lord. Salvation is his to do. And now he has brought his people into a situation where the work of salvation can only be done by him, showing them they cannot possibly do it, putting them in a situation that is so dire that they have no escape, and then saving them from it showing it is him alone. And Moses says, all you have to do is be silent. Just shut up and let him do it. Moses was probably getting tired of the the back talk. Just be silent and see what God is going to do. Moses tells them three things, fear not, stand firm, and see. Fear not, stand firm, and see. Do not fear. Do not fear. As the army of the Egyptians bears down on them, as they see destruction coming, Moses says, don't be afraid. Don't don't fear that. Hard to listen to that. Hard to say, oh, okay, thanks for telling me. I'll stop fearing now. And yet that's the encouragement he gives. The same encouragement angels give to shepherds when they startle them suddenly by appearing at night. Fear not. Fear not. Don't fear. There's an understanding that when when God breaks in on our world, fear is the result. When situations are dire, of course, there will be fear. But when God steps in, there is no need for his people to fear. Why do we need to be reminded that salvation belongs to the Lord? Why do we need to be told that God fights for us precisely because we are so fearful? Precisely because when you think the battle is yours, when you think salvation is your work to accomplish, then the way you will live is riddled with anxiety. If you believe that, if you believe that your salvation is in your hands, that whether or not you are delivered depends on you, you should be afraid. You should fear greatly. I don't think you're going to manage it. 
But if salvation belongs to the Lord, if he fights the battle, then fear not. Then do not wait with anxiety. Yes, you have to wait. Yes, you don't get all the promises made good at once. You have to wait. You have to endure. But endure without anxiety. Endure without fear. If God is doing it, you don't need to be afraid. Fear not, Moses says. Fear not and stand firm. In other words, don't retreat. Don't do what we do when we feel pressed in upon, when we feel beleaguered, we we backpedal, we turn away. Our natural reaction is to pull back. If the weight isn't easy, we want to rush back into bondage. If they could have chosen at that moment, stay here where you find yourself and trust God to do some crazy thing, parting the seas, or we will spare your life and you can come back and be our slaves, what would they have chosen? B. They would gladly have gone back into bondage to escape what seemed to them certain destruction. Don't be like that, Moses says. Stand firm. Don't be afraid and don't turn back. Don't turn back. Instead, advance. Don't slide back into bondage. Fear not, stand firm. And finally, see. See, he says. When you wait, you grow impatient. And when you're impatient, you want to do something. You get bored, you get tired, you get frustrated. You want something to do. And that's the way we are. We, we, we want something to work on, something to do, some, some part of this that can be up to me, that can be my responsibility. So we look to God and we say, give me the action steps. Right? Show me the work I need to do in order to finish this work that you've begun. And then I can feel confidence because I'll know this is under my control. I can determine the outcome. I can control my fate. We want something to do. And Moses doesn't give them something to do. He gives them something to see. He gives them an assignment. He doesn't say do nothing. He doesn't say do nothing. He's saying, look, you're in this moment. And what you need to do now is open your eyes and see what is happening. And never forget it. And be changed by it forever. He's not saying, be quiet, be passive, shut your eyes, lay there, and don't look. He's saying, open your eyes and watch what God is about to do. See it and be changed by it forever. That seeing is the assignment. And that's hard for us. It's hard for us to look past ourselves and see what God is doing in the world around us, to see what God is doing in our own lives. But Moses is saying, as you wait upon the Lord, watch what he does. Pay attention to what he's doing. Moses gives them those three things, and then God adds a fourth one. God comes to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Tell the people to go forward. The sequence is important here. What doesn't happen is this. What doesn't happen is God doesn't say, stretch out your hand. I'm going to send some wind, and it's going to divide the waters, and it's going to be really cool. It's going to look like walls on either side. Everything's going to be dry. And once you see that, go forward. He just says, go forward, and I'll do the rest. Just go forward. Tell them to go forward. That's what they need to know. Go forward. Go forward. To go forward into the sea means death. 
to say to the people who have the Egyptians behind them and the sea in front of them, there's the water, just go forward. That's like saying, go to your death. That's like saying, jump over the cliff, unless God intends to miraculously deliver them, in which case it means life. God is, is taking this movement that means death and saying, no, I will deliver you from death. The thing that seems to be death to you will be the path into new life. That's rich, too, I think, with symbolism for us. This is what he's doing in our lives. Go forward. Go forward into what seems like certain death, certain failure, certain oblivion. Go forward, and I will deliver you. Go forward towards death, and I will bring you out on the other side into new life. This is what God promises his people. So don't fear. Stand fast. See what he's doing and go forward in faith. The last thing is this. Waiting gives you time to look beyond yourself and to focus on the glory of God. This idea of seeing is important. Moses refers to it in an interesting way. You know, he says, you're going to see what God is doing. And then he says, you see these Egyptians? You're not going to see them again. It's like, take a good look at those guys. You know, snapshot in your mind. Cherish it forever, because after today, you're not going to see them. You know, you'll see their bodies on the seashore, but it won't be the same. They're seeing, seeing what God is doing that's going to take place. The focus is going to be outside of yourself. Now, God, at the beginning of this chapter, in the first 14 verses, reveals that he's got a plan for this situation, and the plan is more complicated than you realize. Usually, the way we think about this story is the people go into the wilderness. There's an obstacle in the wilderness. It seems like they're going to be destroyed, but then God delivers them. When you read the beginning of the chapter as we have, you see it's not exactly like that. Like God is the one who's put them in this position, and he has a reason for doing it, but it's, it's, it's a two-part reason. Like Part of it is to deliver the people of Israel. That's kind of implied. But the part God talks about is not that. The part that he talks about is actually not what he's intending to do for Israel. It is what he's intending to do for Egypt. God has a plan for Pharaoh's life. And it's not going to last much longer. So the point is this. The point is not just to get Israel into the promised land. It's not just a geographical exercise. It's not just let's, let's march in a direction, get you into a new place. You've been delivered. You've been given freedom. The point is actually to strike a blow, one blow that in granting deliverance also destroys death. In granting freedom from the bondage of sin, this same blow will also administer justice. It will put a stop to the threat. Why does he do this? God does it for his glory, he says. In Exodus 14.4, he says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. A few verses later, he says, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. And you're thinking, you're the God of the universe. 
Pharaoh's just a guy. I mean, he rules over Egypt. He's been keeping the people in bondage, but he's still just a guy. God can do nothing, and Pharaoh's going to die. That's what happens to, to human beings. What's, what's the deal? Like, does God need to prove himself somehow? Does he need to show the Egyptians? Hasn't he shown them already over and over again? I mean, wasn't, wasn't Pharaoh already in his place until God hardened his heart and drew him out, as he describes? What is going on here? Again, if you look at the historical part of the narrative, you can scratch your head a little bit. If you think about the larger representation, the larger picture of salvation, things start making sense. The act of deliverance is not just delivering people from bondage to sin. It is also destroying death. What Christ has done is not just saved us from the consequences of our sins. He has also, in his death and resurrection, destroyed death, overcome death. And that's what Pharaoh and his hosts represent. God triumphing over death and destruction, over the bondage of sin, and and essentially making it bend the knee to him and acknowledge his power over it, that even death will bow down. And the Egyptians do. There's There's a moment where they're in confusion. They're in the midst of the sea with the walls on either side of them. Their chariots get bogged down, and they start to realize this was a bad idea. We should turn back, they said. Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. That's the moment where they've realized it. It's important not only for God's people to recognize his goodness and salvation, but also for the whole world to see his mercy and his justice, his power over all things. Moses told Israel, that God would fight for them. And now Egypt sees it and confesses it with their lips. It's true. There's a redemptive purpose behind this. Much later, when the Apostle Paul sits down to write his letter to the Romans, he'll look back on this drama with Pharaoh. He'll see in it an important lesson about salvation. Paul writes in Romans 9, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. God does what he does to be glorified. God does what he does to make his name great, so that his name might be proclaimed in all the earth. In salvation, God grants mercy. But by the same stroke, he also delivers justice. He gives life, but just as importantly, he destroys death. Hebrews 11 says, By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. And he did that for his glory. I had a friend, a teacher once, He was always complaining. He taught at a Christian school, but with a lot of different kinds of Christian kids in the classrooms, different backgrounds, different ways of thinking about these questions. And uh, he was confiding in me that that the kids that were his least favorite was the Presbyterian and Reformed kids, because he always liked to draw kids into these 
dilemmas, these ethical dilemmas, these head scratching, you know, what do you do with this? So let's talk about the problem of evil. Let's talk about, you know, how can a good God permit suffering and things like that? He says, I, I, I hate these kids because they always shut down the discussion because I say, why would a good God permit evil to occur? And they say, for his glory. You're like, okay, but but I'm expecting you to struggle with this. I, I want you to see this is an unanswerable question. And they're like, no, it's for his glory. I can sympathize with his frustration as someone who has taught and tried desperately to lure students into a trick question that they refuse to, to enter into. I get it. But at the same time, I, I'm happy. But like, even if you don't understand why that's the right answer, and let's be honest, do any of us understand why that's the right answer? How it is that God glorifies himself in the things that he does? No. But just knowing that, being able to say it's connected to his glory, that's big. And it's not just big, it's also what God says about himself. You may not understand the answer, you may not not be able to work through all the implications, but it is the thing he says about himself. When you try to probe into the motives of God, I did it so that I would have glory over Pharaoh, so that I would have glory, so that my name would be proclaimed in all the earth. That matters to him. It's important to him, that desire for glory, that intention to be worshipped by all creation. It takes us a long time, a long time of waiting in the wilderness to see that it's not all about us. It's not just about you and your problems. And sometimes, paradoxically, the way to overcome your problems is not to focus on them, but to focus outside of yourself. Lose yourself in service to others, and your preoccupation with your own difficulties tends to subside. That's something that comes with maturity and experience. It's not easy to do. In the same way, we need that kind of time to mature and see. There is something larger than us going on in the world. That God is doing something so much bigger than we realize Maybe that's why sometimes we need to be reminded of God's power, of his sovereignty. Not to make it like the, the one point, not to beat that drum constantly, but occasionally, as we're reminded in Scripture, you need to know that salvation belongs to the Lord. And you may look around and say, I'm in a hopeless situation, and maybe you're right about that. But God delivers us from hopelessness. God delivers us from things we cannot deliver ourselves from. Sometimes waiting is important because waiting is an antidote to our self-absorption. In the synagogue at Antioch in Pisidia, after they had gotten together on the Sabbath, they had done their, their weekly readings from the law and the prophets. The tradition was if you had a guest rabbi, teacher traveling through, you'd give him an opportunity to uh, say a few words. So the invitation was extended to this traveler, and he got up and he said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt, and with uplifted arm he led them out of it. These are the words of Paul at Antioch and Pisidia. We're actually told something you don't usually get. We're actually told that when he said these words, like he, he made a gesture. He lifted up his hand as he said it. 
God, with uplifted arm, delivered the people. Paul gets up and lifts up his arm before he declares it. But isn't it interesting? When Paul goes to declare the gospel of Jesus Christ in this new place, that he begins with the story of the Exodus. He begins with the story of Israel's bondage and captivity, deliverance, and the faithfulness of God through the wilderness. That that, for Paul, is a picture of what the gospel is all about. And it is for us a picture as well of what God is doing in our lives. I want to leave you with this, though. Did you catch those words of Paul's about the bondage, the the time that they spent in Egypt? He says, God made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. God made the people great during their stay. He's thinking probably here, literally, of multiplication. They went into Egypt as an extended family, and they came out as a nation. God made them great, literally, numerically. But symbolically, there's something there as well. That through that suffering, through that endurance, there was a greatness. There was a work that God was doing. God was building them up during this time of waiting, during this time of longing. He was preparing them. None of us likes to wait. None of us likes the delay. If you got to rewrite the plan of salvation, wouldn't it be great if it went something like you pray the prayer and then zip, there's Jesus, and it's all done. And then somebody like me says, oh, right, but God wants to be glorified not just by you and your generation, but by all generations. So you're like patiently, okay, let's wait for these other generations. Hopefully there's not too many of them to come so we can get this all over with. But the point of the waiting isn't just for their sake. It's also for yours. That in this time, in this wilderness, in this time of waiting, God is building you up. God is multiplying you. He is strengthening you. He is maturing you. You're not just waiting for them. You're not just waiting on God. You're waiting on you as well. Waiting on what God is doing in you. In this waiting, God is making his people great. He is doing a great work in their midst through Jesus Christ. We stand at the sea and we wait for the sea to part. We find ourselves in a hopeless condition and we hope for deliverance from above. And in that waiting and in that hoping, we also see what God is making of us as we wait for Christ to come and part those final waters, invite us into himself, we see that God is doing something for his glory and our flourishing, even as we wait. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.